And as we'll see, a lot of things that we think we control end up controlling us. And the slaves that we think that we get to hold and we get to control, and this is my thing, actually they enslave us, they become a snare to us. True discipleship is to bravely trust the Lord and his promises over our own instincts, security, and plans. At first reading of chapter uh, Judges chapter 1, then it looks like there's a lot of conquest, a lot of good things are happening. Great, hurrah. Good things are happening. But as we kind of look at it more closely, we start seeing some phrases that kind of acknowledge maybe a, a cancer that's growing within the Israelites, something that, that probably should be completely cut out, but they're kind of like, nah, I don't really need it. Did God really mean destroy? Did God really say you would die if you eat the fruit? Nah, man, you'll be like God. You'll know the difference from good and evil. That's what the serpent said, right? Did God really say to drive them out? Did God really say to destroy? Did God really say? We'll see. Uh, I want to look at, uh, I've got some images here that we're going to kind of cover some scripture pretty quickly. Starting in verse uh, 19, I think. Judges 1, 19. And the Lord was with Judah. Great. God's with Judah. Hurrah. Everyone say hooray. Hooray, God's with Judah. Uh, I think they were, they were one of the more powerful tribes at the time, maybe the most powerful one. Uh, and he took possession of the hill country. Boom, very great, took possession. But he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plains because they had chariots of iron. Dang it. And we're, okay, you tried, Judah. You did your best. They have Apache helicopters and you don't. So, good, you know, you tried, but it's tough. Some things are hard. You, you kind of did. But did he or did he not drive them out? He did not, because they had chariots of iron, right? He did not drive them out. Verse 20, and Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said. Hurrah! And he drove out uh, from it the three sons of Anak. Yes, he drove them out. Next verse. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. Did not drive out. Next. Wow. Verse 27, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Sheen. They, uh, verse 28, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not drive them out. Verse 29, and Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites. Verse 30, Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants. 31, Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akol. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, and they did not drive them out. Verse 33, Neftali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh. They did not do it. The Lord told them to. And they did not. Are you guys seeing the pattern? So we read this, and it's a really boring historical geographical document. If you read Judges 1, you're like, okay, cool. You did this, you did that. Please get to something where isn't David said there's like blood and gore in this book. Like, this is so boring. When you read it in light of what God said, Deuteronomy 7, Joshua 23, Joshua, their leader, told them this. Did they do it? No. They didn't do it. They didn't do what the Lord had said. Joshua says to drive them out. Moses says to bring them to complete destruction. Break down their altars, dash into pieces their pills, and chop down their shirim and burn the carved images with fire. Seven or eight times they didn't drive it out. They didn't do it. Israel enjoyed success on their terms. It looked successful. A lot of these things sounded great. Woohoo, you did it. Ah, but they had chariots of iron, so it's kind of successful. This is on their terms. They got through the one. And they obtained what? They obtained land, a lot of slaves. A lot of cities and economies, a lot of structures. They didn't destroy. They obtained. They conquered for, for themselves. It's a very important thought here because so often we think we're doing what God wants us to do. It looks right. We're at church. We're doing all these things. But what has God actually asked us to do? And do we actually look at ourselves and say, oh, hold on. Am I being obedient to what God said? Or am I conveniently pursuing a Christianity, a faith, 
a deity that I control that makes me feel good about my life. Because Israel spent many years doing what looked good, completely not what God asked them to do. They were half-hearted. Half-hearted and selfish obedience is the issue here. They chose their own conveniences, their desires, or what the Lord had told them. They have a heart problem. Go back to that quote. The problem is the human heart. It doesn't respond well to laws. It responds to what it, it loves. They have a heart problem. God tells them to love him. Joshua says, man, be careful that you love the Lord your God. It's not what they're doing. So what happened? We're going to camp in Judges 2, 1 through 5 for a bit. God shows up and talks to him. Judges 2, verse 1. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bachem. Why Gilgal? I think it's important. We can, we can kind of read it. We can skim through this. Anyone remember where Gilgal is or what, it, what it's about? So interestingly enough, in Joshua chapter 5, Gilgal was a place where there was a new generation that rose up. Uh, and, and the Israelites, there was some circumcision that happened. They uh, celebrated Passover every week. Uh, it was an intense moment. It was a time in Israel's history when they were obtaining land, when they were inheriting it, where they actually had a covenant with God, where God reminded them that I forgive you, I love you, this new generation, I'm with you. It was a time of forgiveness where God bound him to them, where God bound them to him. Joshua 5, 9, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And then they named the place Gilgal, which means to roll away, right? 5, 9. So the angel of the Lord, I think it's so important, comes from Gilgal. So they've been disobedient. They haven't followed what God wants. The angel comes down. Is it because the angel of the Lord, the Lord lives in Gilgal? He had to come down. It's like, oh, let me get my plane ticket because I'm not. No, the angel of the Lord came to remind them, hey, remember this thing at Gilgal that happened where I forgave you, where I rolled away the problems of Egypt? You remember that? He's reminding of them of who he is. And he said to them, I brought you up from Egypt, and I brought you into the land that I swore to give you to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall uh, make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. You have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you've done? They didn't obey. They didn't drive out. We just looked at it seven or eight times. They didn't drive out over and over and over. This wasn't a, a genocide, uh, ethnic cleansing mission. This was spiritual. God told them, get rid of the altars, get rid of the stuff, because God knows that their hearts will be corrupted, that their hearts are corruptible, and that they won't love him, that they'll get distracted. We just read it in Joshua, we read it in Deuteronomy, we'll read it in Deuteronomy 6 here in a little while. God over and over and over warns them and warns us, your hearts are corruptible. You put these things around, you mix them, it's not going to work. The purpose was to cleanse the land of Canaan from idols so Israel could live in faithfulness to the Lord and lead others to the same. God wants lordship over every part of our life, not just the parts we conveniently choose. And you hear that sort of thing a lot in church. Guess what? We're going to talk about idols here in a minute. You hear those languages a lot. Before you check out and say, man, I know all this stuff. I've heard it. Please ask. Very first thing we said, what is God asking you to do? Do you remember him? Do you love him? Because I think in a room this size, we certainly have people that struggle. If you're like me, you struggle with these sort of things, and it's worth being reminded. They have half-hearted discipleship. It's an unstable compound. God wants lordship over our own life, and we get half-hearted. See, it's an unstable compound, because when you insert something else into there, you can't be fully focused on this. You struggle. You start serving two masters. Does that sound like someone we know? Who said you can't serve two masters? 
Jesus read that in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters. For you either hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. Where did Jesus get this? Oh, he was God. He's seen it all happen. This is how the human heart works. You can't serve two masters. The problem is the human heart. It doesn't respond well to laws. It responds to what it, what it loves. We cannot love God and follow Him and obey Him if we, don't, if we forget who He is. It's kind of like a, if you ever heard in a marriage, uh, someone's getting divorced, and they say, I just, I don't love you anymore. We've grown apart. You're not the man I married, right? Or, or a close friend, you, you, you have all these bros at your wedding, and then you haven't talked to them since your wedding, and you're like, man, what happened? Just grew apart. You don't remember them. You don't have a relationship with them. It's really hard to love people you don't remember that you don't know. It's impossible, in fact. How can you truly, to, to love someone is to know them. To remember them, to have some intimate knowledge, relationship of who they are. Everything comes back to epistemology, philosophy. Forget it. The problem is the human heart. They don't remember. What causes this half-heartedness? What causes us to serve two masters? In Joshua, uh, Joshua 23, 11, he says, Be careful, therefore, to love your God. The root of our disobedience is always us failing to remember who he is, and to love him. All the struggles you have in your life, your idol worship, you forget the gospel. That's how we say it in short. See, you've forgotten the gospel. You don't remember who Jesus is. You don't remember who the Lord is. If you remembered the Lord, then you would see the duplicity. You'd see the half-heartedness. You'd see the tension here. But, but we forget. We forget the Lord. This brings us to Deuteronomy 6. We've read Deuteronomy 6 a lot in here, right? And we're going to have it on the screen. But I want you to listen hard to these words. Because it's part of the Shema, say Shema, or Shema, if you're super Hebrew in here, right? The Shema is uh, a word that means to listen and obey, to hear, to listen and obey. And this is a prayer that the Israelites would say many, many times a day. Uh, I think sometimes we should join them. Deuteronomy 6, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, oof. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Interesting, when Jesus said there are two greatest commands, this is the one he quoted. Well, he asked what, what was the greatest command. He gave two, but he was saying they're both one and the same. Love the Lord, love your neighbors yourself. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God. The Lord is one. Love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words I have commanded you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk about them when you sit at your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. You shall put them as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorsteps of your house and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to you, your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give to you with uh, great and good cities that you did not not build, and houses full of good things that you did not fill, and cisterns uh, that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and you're full, take care, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Gosh, excuse me. Hmm. Out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. The Lord is speaking to Moses here and saying, remember. Remember who God is. Love God. How do you love him? Well, don't forget. 
Teach your kids. Let it be so important that it's what you talk about when you're going. When, when it's so important that it's written on your stinking forehead. It's written on your wrist. It's written on your doorpost. Everyone knows when you're walking, when you're sitting, when you're rising, you are that annoying Jesus freak person who never stops talking about who the Lord is because that is who it is. Everything is the Lord. Everything is in Christ. Everything comes back to the gospel. Do this because you're going to forget. This is so important to me because I forget. I have a posture at least a couple times a week where I read these verses because I forget to teach my kids. I forget to approach my wife this way. I forget to approach my job and my emails this way. I forget. And so I've got to remember. And when God appears to them, when God appears to them, he says, remember the angel of the Lord. Remember Gilgal? I was there and I forgave you. Do you remember? The first thing God says to them is, I brought you up. Judges 2, verse 1. I brought you up from Egypt. I brought you into the land that I swore to give to you. I said, I will not break my covenant with you. Remember. Remember what the Lord has done. Do you remember what the Lord has done in your life? Because I submit that you're forgetting. Because I forget. And it's my stinking job. (laughs) I'm a hired holy man, in case you didn't notice. I forget. We're all forgetting. And when God appears, his first appeal to them is to remember what he's done. Remember and love the Lord you have with everything. I think it's interesting here that those who do not remember, they tend to form generational habits that lead to people completely forgetting. Church parents, listen to me. If we teach our children half-heartedly, if we parent half-heartedly, They don't know the Lord, and they won't remember the Lord. And we'll wonder, why don't our kids follow Jesus? Because we let them worship at the altars of sports and school and extracurriculars and all these things that have nothing to do with Jesus. Those things aren't bad. I'm not saying you shouldn't do those things. I'm saying that if you're half-hearted in your discipleship, if you don't love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, if you're not going about your day and your kids see everything you do is for the Lord, then of course they're going to be half-hearted disciples because they see you as a half-hearted disciple. And we see the exact same thing happen here. Judges 2, verse 10 and 11. And there arose another generation after Joshua died. There arose another generation of them who did not know the Lord or work that he had done for Israel. They didn't know. Why didn't they know? Because no one taught them. Because no one remembered. And so they didn't know. And what's it say? And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. If we are half-hearted disciples, we raise no disciples. That's what happens. Quit pretending that this is a halfway thing for you. Quit pretending that your family can casually pretend that this matters. Do your kids see that every part of your life, do the kids in our church, the kids around you, and it doesn't matter if you're a parent, if you're an adult human, there are people that look up to you. Do they see you worshiping God here on Sundays and the rest of your life, you don't give a rip about who the Lord is? Then why would they care about God? It's half-heartedness, and they see it better than you do. They're not in, they don't need to pretend for you. You're pretending for you. <laughs> Makes you feel better. They don't care. They see it as stupid, fallacious, lame. We've got to remember these things. God's call to us is to remember. We can't love him if we don't remember. Why didn't they love God? Why didn't they remember? They lived among idols and worshipped the Canaanites. Judges 2 verse 13. They abandoned the Lord and served Baal and Asheroth. Idols make us forget God. That's it. 
simple. And again, we've talked about idols so much, and you can't talk about the Bible without talking about idols. And so you guys will hear these things like, okay, yeah, so I've got an idol of money. I've got to just stop and think about first, what is an idol, right? An idol in general is when we take a good thing from creation, something God gives us, right? Like, uh, like marriage, mountains, food, family, money, sex, business, on and on, whatever it is, we take it and we make it an ultimate source of our security, our identity, our power. We control it. We be like God, make things idols. They give us. What in your life gives you security? What in your life makes you feel powerful, gives you identity? Maybe that's your idol. Tim Keller says, an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give, uh, you seek to give you what only God can give. Anything that is so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. Our worship of idols prevents us from remembering and loving God. And I think it's interesting here, uh, 2.13 says that they worship the Baals and Ashtaroth. It wasn't, it wasn't just their posture of saying, oh, well, this God is bigger. Like kind of like the golden calf thing where they create the golden calf. Say, ah, this God's going to be our go-between. They started believing that we need a little bit of Yahweh with a little bit of all these things. And so often we talk about idols, then you're thinking, okay, well, I don't only drink alcohol, so that can't be talking about me. I don't only have sexual internet issues, so it can't be me. It's a blend. It's a mixture. The Israelites struggled to mix all these things. They still worshiped Yahweh. They went to church on Sundays, or temple, or wherever they went. They still did their christian or sorry, their Yahweh-ish things, right? We still do our Christian things. But our identity, our security, our power, now that's us. We control that. We're going to control. And, and what's so interesting is they said, you know what? We're going to control this our own way. It said, the Lord tells them, look, I told you to drive this out, and now there'll be thorns in your side. There'll be snares to you. Idols always ensnare us. Idols promise to make us, thing, make us happy and uh, make us feel secure, make us feel powerful. But they actually trap us because an idol can never give you grace, forgiveness, and love. Never. It's false because you control it. It's all about you. And and we could talk so much, man, I could give so many analogies and try so hard to unearth this because we're all going to walk out of here and pretend like this isn't us and we don't struggle with this. Man, God, may your spirit convict us. Where are you mixing all this stuff together thinking you have control? Because here's here's where where we struggle in America, in Memorial. Some of you sitting in this room. Here's where you struggle. I'll just break it down for you real easy. You do all your church stuff. You come here on Sundays, you sing your songs, you raise your hand, you get really emotional, and then you spend all week on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and that is where your heart is. That is where your identity is. You spend all week in your job, and that is where your identity is. That is where your identity is. You spend all week in your family, making sure everyone knows the kind of family you are. That is your life. And so you're here for God's time, and then the rest of your life is your time for you. Your time, your money, your energy. And we preach on this, and we hit it so hard because it's such a real struggle. We forget. And God is telling us to remember. Remember that I'm the God of your bank account. That I'm the Lord of your time. I gave you life. I gave you every moment that you have. I'm the Lord your God. Love me with everything. Remember what I've done for you. That you only have life, power, security, whatever, because God's given it to you. It's not your time. It's God's time. It's not your money. It's God's money. It's not your boat, your 401k, your retirement, your children. 
Who knitted your children in your womb? Did you do that? Yeah, sure, sperm and egg, great, you did that. But there's clearly something that happened beyond your control. God did that. His word tells us he did that. All these things belong to God. And God's cry to them is to remember. And their cry, their struggle, is they don't drive out, they mix, they worship other gods, they do evil inside the Lord because they want to be in control. And it all still sounds like Genesis 3. It all still sounds a lot like you can be like God. You'll know good for evil for yourself. You'll be in control. The problem is the human heart. It doesn't respond well to laws. It responds to what it loves. Your heart was meant to worship the Lord alone. That's what it's created for. It's to worship God. You've heard all the quotes about the God-shaped vacuum. Your heart was meant to worship the Lord. Remember and love Him. The greatest danger in your life, in all of Christianity, is not atheism. It's not Richard Dawkins convincing you that you need to quit believing, that we drop it all. The greatest danger is asking God to coexist with your idols. Please let that settle in. Your biggest struggle in life is the mixture of coexisting, the things you claim to worship, the things I claim to worship. I love you, Lord. I lift your name to worship you alone. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. But also... I want to control my image on Facebook and I want to control how I approach my job and I want to control my fantasies for my life and my family. You can't do both. You will love one and hate the other. And the Bible tells us, we're going to see this all through the book of Judges. You will love one and hate the other over and over and over. Identify the idols in your life, please. As God convicts you right now, don't, don't let those moments pass by. Write them down. Send a text yourself. Send a, send a text to your wife. Send a text to your friends. Send a text to me. Here's the things I struggle with. Here's my idols in my life. And then what do you do with it? Ask yourself, am I willing to do whatever God says about that area? Am I willing to do whatever God says to me about parenting? What does the book say? What does the Bible say about parenting? Am I willing to do that? Am I willing to do anything God says to me about marriage? Am I willing to do anything God says to me about my money? The church just wants my money. Stop. Are you willing? Forget what I'm asking you to do. What does the Bible tell you to do? What is God asking you to do with your time, your energy, your money? Are you willing to submit that? Or is this just another moment? You sit, you listen. David got excited. He just used a goofy voice. Doses. See you next week. Maybe I'll like something on Facebook later. It leads to destruction. Please take heed for what happened with the Israelites, the things God's saying, all the things we read in Judges. This cycle happens over and over and over again. So what's the hope in all this? Is God just a bully, like Dawkins suggests, because, you know, then God punishes them. He disciplines them. He tests them is another word that's used in all this. In Judges 4, 17, or Judges chapter 2, 17, there's a really interesting verse that says that they have whored or prostituted themselves to other gods. In Ezekiel, in Ephesians, parts of Isaiah, several parts in the Bible, some of Jesus' parables, we see this image that God is our, uh, our bride, or that we're the bridegroom. God is the groom, that, that he wants an intimate relationship with us. This whole idea is this marital intimate relationship. Forget about the broken marriages you know about. Forget about your mommy and dad who 50% are divorced or whatever. Stop that. Imagine all the ideas in your head of what a marriage should be. The lovey-dovey, kiss each other, things that make you sick. You're like, Ugh, I don't want to be a part of that because it makes me feel weird that I'm not a part of that. All of that, you want that intimate relationship. We were created for it. We want intimate, you want a best friend. You want someone to know you in life. 
You want that relationship. God created that. He wants that relationship with us. He says that you have whored, you have prostituted in judges because he sees this as a marital offense. Why? Not because he's a bully, because he loves them. Because he loves you. We can so quick say God gets angry and he does all these mean things in these circumstances. He gets angry because he loves them. Just like you get angry with your kids. Just like you get angry with your spouse. Just like you get angry with your best friend, your dog, your cat. Not your cats. You get angry because you love them. Because you love them. In Judges 2, 16 through 19, as we finish working through the chapter, it says, Then the Lord raised up judges. This is kind of a, a clip of all of Judges, kind of uh, uh, summarized here. Verse 16, And the Lord raised up judges who would save them out of the hand of those who plundered them. God allows them to plunder them to discipline, and then he raises a judge to save them. Why? Because he's a malevolent bully? Because no, you prostitute. He loves them. He has a marital relationship with them that he's not going to break. He loves you. He loves them. Verse 18, whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge. And he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groanings because of those who were afflicted and oppressed by them. That word moved to pity, naam, it's a Hebrew word. It also means compassion. It means move to sorrow. You see something and you're sorry for, you're compassionate for, you feel driven to fix it when he sees their groaning and their suffering, that he allowed, God allows them to be overtaken sometimes. He allows them to be disciplined. And then he hears their groanings and he feels compassion for them because he loves them. When you look in your life and you see all the junk and you say, why God? What if it's because God loves you? What if God's wanting you to turn him and say, I want a right relationship with you. And I'm not nearly suggesting that every bad thing happens in your life because God is secretly causing it. I'm just suggesting in general that what if everything in God's earth is trying to point you to a loving God who wants a relationship with you? What if all the snares that you have with your idols, what if all these things that lead you to your path of destruction, what if God's saying, I love you, will you remember me? When, we're, when we have half-hearted discipleship, we're not motivated by love. We're not remembering God in love. Why? Because we have a heart problem. The problem is the human heart. It doesn't respond well to laws. And if you're sitting here and you're thinking God just wants you to do something, get out there and do it. Go fix it. Go be better. Get rid of your idols. If you're not motivated by love, you're going to miss it. You've got to remember who God is, the love he wants. What does God want you to do? We asked this at the beginning. What does God want you to do? I want to, I want to do this real quick. Matthew 5. Who, who left it open? Told you to leave Matthew 5 open? Matthew 5, 6, and 7. We just went through the Sermon on the Mount. I want someone in broad, single words. What are some things Jesus talked about in Matthew 5, 6, and 7? Hunger. I'll get us started. Yeah, hunger and thirst for righteousness, okay? So let's say uh, righteousness. Righteousness. I'm going to have to write fast, but you'll get it. Hunger and thirst for it. What else did he talk about? He talked about divorce. Do you remember? He had something to say about divorce. And in there, he also talked about sexuality, right? We don't want to believe Jesus had anything to say about sexuality, but he did. Quit pretending that he didn't. Jesus cares about how we approach men and women. Jesus cares about how we approach marriage. He cared about it. Let's write marriage too. What's something else? Jesus taught us about? Worry. worry. He told us not to worry. Why? Because your heavenly father knows what you need. What else? Mercy, right, so some mercy about, uh, also taught us about anger, right? Anger and hatred, anger, hatred. They're connected, they're connected with murder. I'm just going to write that in there, murder. It's all connected. 
What else? Prayer. prayer. Taught us about prayer. Told us very sweet. When you pray, pray like this. We're going to talk about that here in a minute. Prayer. Money. money. Oof. Taught us about your money. We can stop right there. There's plenty. Uh, narrow road. We'll just write narrow. Love your neighbor, man. Love your neighbor. Gosh. What has God asked you to do? You might be sitting here and you might be saying, God hasn't asked me to do anything. Yes, he did. We just spent several weeks talking about it. And the reason this is so important is because we want excuses. We want excuses to mix it. But if you remember, which you might have forgotten, the sermon we talked about worry, and you're like, oh, crap. We did learn something about worry. And I've forgotten. Of course you've forgotten. That's the whole problem. And God says, remember, if you remember what we said about anger and hatred and how we caricaturize people and we miniaturize them in our minds so that we can stomp them and hate them, of course you forgot because that's the whole problem. That's what evil's doing. That's what your selfish heart's doing. And then you reduce this into a law that's something you have to do. When the Spirit enters you, when Jesus Christ says, we'll make our home in you, he gives us a heart of love. The Bible says he'll remove our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. And as your heart gets convicted for these things, it's because there's a loving father who wants a loving relationship with you. And so I want you to ask church, individual, what has God asked you to do? There's very specific things. Read Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Some of you I know have stories, God told me to quit smoking pot. God told me to quit drinking out. God told me to quit going to the clubs. I'm not, I'm not trying intentionally to make eye contact with anyone because I'm not doing this intentionally. I'm just saying, God told me very specifically, you should never have unfiltered internet. And when I do, it's a problem in my life. God told me very intentionally, you have an anger issue and you need to find time to have peace every day or you're going to be angry with your family. So I know God told me that so I can choose to be obedient with that or I can choose to squash it down and say, no, 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 I'm busy. I can control this. I can, I can take my whatever pills to be happy and then also do the life I want over here, not following what God told me to do. What has God told you to do? Please, may this moment of going through judges give you pause to say, God has called me to do something. And my lack of obedience is putting me in a trap. It's snaring me. It's a thorn, as God says. And God loves you enough to let it trap you. God loves you enough to let you fall into it and cry out to him so he can save you. Come to the end of yourself. May we see what God has asked us to do. Ask yourself what we asked all through this. Do you believe what God has said. Do you believe what Jesus said? What if Jesus said true things? What if he was right about divorce, about sexuality, about loving your neighbor, about the narrow road, about money? What if he was right? Are we obeying those things? What if, what if God was right when he told me I should join a life group? What if I realize I need community in my life and I just, eh, it's not a good Sunday for that. What if God was right when he told me to join the church? Oh, not this Sunday. Oh, sermon's going long, and there's a heavy, thick cloud of emotion in the room when David's silent. Ugh, no, not this Sunday. What if God meant what he said when he told you to be generous? That, that your wallet and your job and your bank account and your dreams are a trap. What if he meant that? Is that something you're obedient to? Oh, no, I, I give 10%, and that's probably what the Bible says somewhere. So that's fine, that's fine. What if God meant that he wants you to have radical generosity and live open-handedly? Your time, your money, your energy, it's not yours, it's God's. Carp on these things all day long, but are you being obedient to what God called you to? Because the story of Judges is disobedience and destruction and God saving over and over and over and us noticing a heart problem. The heart only obeys what it loves. 
Church, what does God ask us to do and are we doing it? Person, individual, what does God ask me to do? Am I remembering him? Do I love him? Here's, here's the tension that has to be discussed in the last few minutes here. Here's the big tension of Judges uh, chapter 1 and 2 that we just read. In verse 1 through 3 of chapter 2, the Lord says, I brought you up from Egypt, and I brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have disobeyed me. And then God asks simply, what is this that you've done? Another Hebrew translation says, look at what you've done to me. Look at the position you've put me in. Imagine this situation. God said he would bless them. He's faithful to them. He forgives them. God also said, if you do these things, I will punish you and you will be wiped from the land. And so now God has this big tension. What have you done? Is what he asks his loving bride. What is this that you've done? Because I told you I would always do this and this and this, but I also told you I'd always do this and this and this, and you chose to break your end, so now it's on me. And so it's fair that God says, what is this that you've done? God rescued them over and over and over because he loves them, but he wants to bless them. And they've disobeyed, and God is just, and God is holy. What do we do with this tension? We've talked about this before, God's justice, his holiness, his mercy. What is this that you've done? All of this makes sense when we look at Jesus. When we look at Jesus on the cross, all of a sudden we can fully make sense of God fully being holy, just, merciful, and loving. Because God said, I'm going to take all of your punishment. All these idols in your life, all these ways that you mix, all these things that, that you get apathetic about, all these things that I've told you to do that you disobey, I'm going to take that on. I'm going to die for it. When we look at the cross, we can see all this resolve that the Lord took our punishment. He satisfied his justice and holiness so that he can now forgive us and welcome us eternally because he loves you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. All of Judges over and over and over is going to remind us that the problem is the human heart. It doesn't respond to laws. It responds to what it loves. And God loves you so much that he gave his life so that you could be forgiven. So as you hear today where you're disobedient, where you're, you say, oh man, I, I said I would never club again, and I do it. Or I said I'd never smoke pot again. I do, okay, now I'm disobedient. I haven't been giving enough to the church. That's fine. May the Spirit convict you, and may you take actions of obedience. But may they be rooted in love. Because if they're not rooted in love, then it's blind obedience to something that doesn't mean anything to you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. The heart follows what it loves. The Lord loves us, and we see it all through Judges. We're going to move into a time of response. Uh, we're going to sing, sing another song. Here's what I'd like you to do during that time. I'd like you to take a moment to think through what are the idols in your life? What are the things that give you power, security, comfort? What are those things that are more important than God in your life? And please take a moment to have this posture that we teach every Sunday. Open your hands. It's not my money, God, it's yours. Say that to him this morning. It's not my time, God, it's yours. And I acknowledge that there are several places in your kingdom you've asked me to serve in your church. It's not my time, it's yours. It's not my skill, it's yours. Whatever skill I think I like, it's in your hands. It's not my energy, it's yours, God. May we submit all these things to him because he's given it to us. And may we see from judges that God loves us and he wants us to remember. 
Maybe this morning you need to just close your eyes and remember what God has done for you. And if nothing else, remember that he's brought you here this morning to hear the gospel, to hear that he loves you and that he wants a right relationship with you. Praise God for that. As we worship, this is your time to respond. If you need someone to pray with, you can come down. If you feel like you need to join the church, you need to get baptized, whatever the spirit's moving, we can talk about it. But if nothing else, please open your hands to God. Be obedient to him. What is God asking of you? Do you remember him? Do you love him? Father, I pray that you would guide us as we respond right now. It feels so heavy to read these things and hear your people struggle and, and to read it and believe that we would never make those mistakes. And then this is all us. We do the same things. And I pray beyond all the intense words and things that have been spoken and the things that we read that your spirit would move, God, because I never confident in my words. I trust in you, God. I pray that your spirit would move and that you would guide us to trust you, that we would obediently seek you. God, may we love you with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind. May we remember you. Teach others. Guide us to be obedient because of a heart that loves you, has a right relationship with you. May your spirit enter us and transform us during this time.